everybody, it's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com with Eric the Car Guy taking your questions. This is episode 209 of the Humble Mechanic Podcast. All right, a little bit different scenario that we'll talk about in just a second, but remember if you want to get a question on a show like this, email me, charles at HumbleMechanic.com. Put question for Charles right at the top in the subject, ask the question just in the body of the email, then give me all the details of the question. Doing what Eric is miming really does help so much. Also, if you don't see your question on a show like this, be sure to check out the quick videos playlist on YouTube where I do one question per video. Also, if you want the audio only version of these shows, hit up iTunes, hit up Google Play, and whatever your other favorite podcasting platform is, and you can check it out there. I'm gonna skip my normal spiel about the crew membership and jump right into your questions. Eric, we only have about five hours of road tripping left before we get to our final destination, so we gotta get on the ball. Eric and I are on the road heading to Tennessee, Chattanooga to be exact, for a tire event with Nokian Tires, which I'm pumped about. We're actually riding on Nokian tires right now, yeah. which is pretty awesome. Feels like I'm driving on a cloud. All right, first one up comes from Jeff. It says, hey, Charles, been watching your White Wookiee videos, so appreciate that, Jeff. Question is, what's the best way to break in a fresh rebuilt engine and seat the rings properly? There seems to be a million ways to do this, and I'm having trouble sorting out the proper way. Just finished a VR612 valve, Jetta rebuild. Awesome. Replace main, rod bearings, water pump, timing chains, guides, piston rings, valve seals, cam followers, and he's going to do cams later. So, what is the best way to break in an engine? Well, that's a lot of time, effort, and money for sure. And the last thing you want to do is screw it up. I agree. Which, that is a very valid question, and he's right. There's a lot of different things that I've heard out there. In fact, I have two different answers for you. Uh, one from my builder who recently built my engine, Dark Matter Pikachu, which is in my Fairmont project. Uh, 575 horsepower turbocharged beast. Uh, he says, like when you were ripping it on the dyno, it's broke in, it's ready to go. Like yep. jump in, turn the key, bam, you're, you're in. If it's if it works, it works. You're good. You're good. On the flip side, I've also heard of varying engine speed as much as possible for the first 500 miles. Manual transmissions are excellent for this. So in other words, don't get out on the highway, drive like 70 miles an hour for an hour like drive 50, accelerate a little bit, decelerate a little bit, drive in some traffic, and you know, really change the RPMs as much as possible to try to you know, give the, throw some stuff in the engine so it can, it can do something different. I've heard those two things. Uh, my engine was broken in on the dyno, because I mean, they were doing full pulls like right out of the gate. So that's, I guess, broke in. But uh, that's what I've heard. How about you, George? I, I actually mirror that answer very much. When you look in your owner's book of your car, that's what it says. Varying RPM, uh, not extended idle times for 500 to 1,000 miles. So the other thing is actually more to where you said at first is that when you speak with race car engine builders, they don't break it in for 500 miles. They put it on the dyno or put it in the car and they load it up. And I think that really is the key is you don't want it on your fresh rebuild, fire it up and let it idle for 20 minutes. It's bad for camshafts, it's bad for lifters. You need to have load to properly set the rings. I'm glad you brought up camshafts, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, because yeah, some camshaft manufacturers dictate the break-in for yep. the camshaft itself, like holding it at 2,500 RPM for a certain period of time, yep. that kind of thing. So in essence, if, if your cam 
company, the company that you bought the cam from, has a certain break-in procedure, follow that break-in procedure. Right. Like if, if you have questions, well, the people that built and designed the parts that you're using likely know best because they've done some research and development in order to get those answers. So I, I just wanted to yeah, throw that in there. Definitely. And, and Jeff, I know you didn't replace cams, but it still kind of goes the same. Now with the VR, especially if you don't end up priming the oil pump, I've done a video on how to exactly do that. It's super easy to do. Uh, you can check that out. If you haven't primed the oil pump, when you first hit that key, your engine is going to be starved of oil. So you need to immediately bring the idle up. I've found that for the most part, like 1500 RPM is a pretty good RPM to quiet the engine down, just really get that oil up to the top end of the engine. And it happens quick. It goes from making a crap ton of racket to quiet, 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 and then it's smooth. So on my cabbie that I had redone, stock, completely stock rebuild, which it sounds like what you did, I let it idle for 30 seconds just to make sure the car wasn't going to shut off. Yeah, look for leaks. And then I brought the RPM up. And even with leaks, you're looking for, oh crap, I didn't hook this coolant line up. You're looking for catastrophic yeah. loss. Yeah. A drip, let it go, break the engine in. But catastrophic loss, obviously you want to shut the car right. off. So right. I'm of the mindset of load the engine up, get everything seated. I'm also like going to be nice to it for a little while yeah. and not beat the crap out of it. But I think of, you know, everybody has the right way to do it. And I lean more towards what do professional engine builders and race car engine builders, what do they say? Because they've done more than most of the people probably talking about it online. Clutches actually have a break-in period Clutches. too, very similar to brakes. So a clutch break-in is similar to what your owner's book says for your engine break-in. You know, shift it, drive it, put load on it, just be nice to it, and you'll probably be just fine. All right, next one up is from Daniel. Uh, good evening. I wanted to start and say that I'm a fan of what you do. I'm glad I came across your YouTube channel. I am also glad about that. Uh, basically, the the gist of the question is Daniel wants to know he's he's about to interview for a job at a VW dealer. What should he ask? when interviewing for the job. And I have to say this part, it says he was inspired by myself, Eric the car guy, and our Thanks. good buddy, in our inner circle buddy, Jason from Engineering oh, yes, Explained, who I wish was sitting right behind us here. The Love you, Jason. <laughs> um, so uh, that's a great question. What questions should he ask when interviewing? Really, this is gonna go for just about any job, I think. Yeah. In fact, I did a, a thing about job interviews, and I, I, I'd said, especially if you're a technician and you've spent a lot of time and effort into getting your automotive education, you're gonna go out there and get your first job, you wanna make sure you land someplace where you're gonna be happy. Yep. And you know, I, it's not so much the questions that you ask the person that's interviewing, I think. If you could get the opportunity, find your way into the shop and talk to the guys that are actually working in the shop and yep. see how they feel about where they work. I think that's going to be, you're probably going to get the, the best feedback from that. And also you get an opportunity to see some of the people that you might work with <laughs> because that, that dude's got a big beard. He must suck. Yeah, he must. That being said, um, that's going to be a, a real world uh, window into the job that you're looking to get because those people are out there in the trenches already. Right. So you might find somebody that maybe you find right off the bat you don't necessarily get along with or you're sort of getting this vibe of, uh, we don't want no new people here because, you know, and we want all the money for ourselves. Yeah, exactly that kind of thing. 
So, I mean, the politics that you walk into, I think, are even more effective with your work environment and your job. But more to your point, like the questions that I would ask my employer, um, yeah, when do I get paid? <laughs> well, there's, there's a series of questions that are like right. the basis. What, what do you think, Charles? What, what do I get paid? When is payday? What are my benefits? Right. You'll find that the answers to those are pretty much universal, right? Yeah. Company A is going to have a little bit different compensation package than Company B, but it's not going to be that different, especially if you're the new guy, right? right. If you're if this is your first automotive job, you're not going to get paid a ton of money, which sucks because you're probably buying a lot of tools. Right. Um, so th that's kind of like, okay, it is what it is. The questions that I always want to know are, when is training? How do I advance? How yeah. do I learn you know, this stuff, do I have to go to school or does somebody come here and train us? What's the online training availability like? Um, is there a, a tool allowance that the company offers? What happens if I break something, do I have to pay for it? Or does the company buy the parts? So the way it worked at my dealership, if I broke something and, and wasn't a scumbag about it and just fessed up to it, the boss man might not have been thrilled, but it was, okay, make it right. And that meant he bought the part and I did the labor for free, which I thought was a pretty fair, fair. way to do it. Because, I mean, things break. Sometimes you were being, you know, in a rush or in a hurry and you broke it because you weren't paying attention. Or just some, sometimes things break. Or sometimes you look at it wrong and it breaks all on its own. It just exploded. So those would really be the questions I would focus on beyond how much do I get paid, when's review time, what raises do I get. And your point about going back in the shop is one that we, uh, at the dealership I worked at made a huge deal about go in the shop. Like, I'm not going to hold your hand. Just I'll, I'll introduce you to one person. That's excellent. And walk around and talk to everybody. They'll be honest with you. If, if they're open about it, I think that's very telling. If they're not open about it, that's that would give flag. me pause. That, that's, that, that's that, that would be a red flag. Like, oh, you don't want me to go and check out the work environment that I'm going to be spending my working life in day to day yep. and talk to the people that I might potentially be working with. Yeah, I, I would. That would give me pause. Yeah, but you can also ask about things like, you know, how many ROs average do you guys do a day? What's your busiest month? Uh, you can get really deep and start talking about labor rates and effective labor rates. That'll impress you, your boss if you start asking. Uh, impress about or they might fire you on the spot. <laughs> about things, <laughs> things like you know effective labor rate and and whatnot. But um, another thing I would make sure because I never really liked this pay scale is. Does your dollar rate change based on the, the job you do? So some shops have a maintenance labor rate that they charge a customer and a maintenance labor rate that they pay technicians. It sounds like an accounting nightmare to me, yeah. but we I always got paid the same dollar rate no matter what job I did. But there are certain jobs at other dealers or shops where if you get paid $20 an hour, say, uh, for repair time, you may get paid 12 doing oil changes. Right. on maintenance so that's another question you want to make sure that you really get out but I think your thing about sorry to cut you off I think your thing about the vibe and the work coming out of the dealership um, you can ask them about their CSI score which you'll either, yes. either make you a hero yes. or if they're weird about it just be like alright yeah exactly you know which yeah. doesn't tell all the stories. CSI, but... we should give a little background, the customer satisfaction index. Yep. Yeah, so that's basically the survey that customers get after they come and get their car worked yeah, on. Yeah, it's like, you just had your vehicle service with yeah. us. Go here to fill up this survey and tell us how we did. It's it's the dealership's report card about that transaction yes. right there. Yes. People get weird on these surveys. You know, <laughs> geez, I've read some Some people are just mad that they spent a lot of money. 
or they're mad at the car or they're mad because your right. popcorn was stale right. i mean there's all kinds of but exactly if the company has a low csi and doesn't have a plan to correct it or isn't focusing on it which may be why you're being hired to me that's a problem yeah if they're not i mean i think in a lot of ways that survey is stupid and it uses it's used to leverage people and not give them the pay that they deserve right but it can also be an accurate indicator of the spirit of the building you're working in. And since you're not working there, it's not any reflection on you or your work at all. It's yep. a reflection on the dealership where you're applying, yep. which you want to make sure that you go someplace that's worthy of you and your skills because you're going to spend a lot of time there, a lot of effort. Hopefully you're going to get along with people. Hopefully you're going to find a place where you can make a decent living on top of that. Yep. And that's the way you go into it. I mean, you've you've made this considerable investment into your education. I mean, you've, you've taken that step and you're gonna to continue to make an investment in tools likely for the rest of your life if you decide to choose this as your profession. So make it worth it, make it count. I mean, don't just grab the first job that comes up. Shop around because technicians, good technicians especially, are in short supply now. So if you're a good technician and you're, you're striving to be a good technician, you're worth your weight in gold to a dealership in my opinion. And if, if this is your first job, what becomes to me anyway more important than most all the rest of that is what is the mentorship or apprenticeship program at the dealership. That's, if, yes. I'm so thankful that I got in at a time where they had that already structured through BW and the dealership and I had an incredible mentor and it was something I worked really hard through my career for the dealership to build a mentorship program with, with myself and some of my colleagues because that is so important. If they just throw you to the wolves, the odds of you being successful go down dramatically. Even if you're good, you're less likely to be successful than if they have a structured program with a person you're gonna work with that's gonna be your go-to teacher, mentor, life coach, guy you hate because he screams at you sometimes when you're doing things that are dumb. You can also show you the politics and how things work in the dealership too, which is extremely important. It's not yep. just, doing the actual work itself. It's how to get along in the work environment. So I, I think that, like, those are some of the key things. I mean, this is a deep, deep topic. It is. And you could go on for hours about what you really need to do. But I think getting that baseline feel is so important because you're never really gonna know, never gonna know what it's like until you're in the building, turning wrenches, working with an advisor, and punching a time clock on an RO. Next up is from Ted, and he's got a question about air conditioning on his B6 Passat. So B6 Passat is going to be 06 through 2010 Passat, uh, like FSI and TSI. It's like we're playing Battleship. B6. You sunk my B6 Miss. Passat. <laughs> well, <laughs> so uh, Ted lives in California, and the temperature varies between 30 degrees and 115. My facade doesn't seem to be able to keep up with the high temperatures. It takes forever to start cooling and cannot bring the temperature down when it's over 100. I put a set of gauges on the AC when the ambient temperature was about 80 and found the low pressure side at 55 and the high pressure side at 300. I let some refrigerant out to get it to 45 on the low side. That seemed to help a bit, but still struggles. What should these numbers be? And does refrigerant ever wear out where it has to be completely exchanged? So I'm going to field part of this question, and then Eric, I'm going to turn it over to you for some of the maybe refrigerant pressures. This car, the TSI, so this is like the CCTA uh, direct injection turbo with the chain-driven um, timing setup. 
these compressors are notorious for being bad in a very squirrely way. I really don't think you can diagnose this problem properly simply by putting manifold gauges on it. It's it, a good start. It's a great start and it's part of the diagnosis, but in order to properly diagnose this system, you don't have to, but I feel like you're wasting time and energy by not grabbing a scan tool and hooking it up because you can go in and see what the compressor is doing, what the command on for the compressor is. And to me, Eric, correct me or give me your insight on, on different makes and models. To me, at 80 degrees with the AC on full, 55 and 300 is a high, high side and a high, low side. Yeah, it's high on both sides. First thing that came to my mind is like maybe flooded with oil. Like if there's too much oil or too much refrigerant and you let some refrigerant out, what were the readings after you let refrigerant uh, out? He said it went down to 45 after he let some out. So that seems like a good place to start maybe, like yep. do a complete evac and recharge just to make Absolutely. sure that you've got the correct charge to start with. Because uh, it may just be that somebody went in there to top it off and overcharged it. And as a result, you got too high pressures, which will give you inconsistent cooling. I have found, so my, my diagnosis strategy for air conditioning problems was very simple. Step one, check it and see what it does. Yeah, does it work? At all. Step two, I was hooking up the machine and I would run the car with the manifold gauge on it, basically. No matter what I found, unless the air conditioning was working perfectly, the next thing, all the refrigerant was coming out and getting weighed because I needed to know exactly how much refrigerant was in it when the customer was having the problems. Every single time. And while it was evacuating, I would do my visual inspection, look for damage, look for, you know, make sure the fans come on. Of you course, know, I'm glad one. you said that because I was just gonna interject that. Those high pressures could also be the result of a cooling fan that's not operating. And this, this car should trip the check engine light if you don't have both cooling fans okay. running. The big fan is well, your fan and your module. The small fan is the slave fan. It should, but maybe it's not. Maybe you got a blade broken on a fan and it's just not pulling enough air through Or the, debris in front of the condenser. Or debris through the condenser. So because you probably don't have the means to properly evacuate the refrigerant, you're gonna wanna start with a visual. Fans coming on high speed with the air conditioning on. Nothing blocking the condenser. Does your air conditioning change behavior when you're stopped versus when you're driving? That can point to a, a potential blockage or a potential vanish air flow issue. But I'll tell you that these compressors, when they start getting, uh, I guess the best way to refer to it is lazy, mm. it's typically because the compressor's starting to fail. These compressors are wobble plate compressors. Okay, so they're, com they're, swash plate. Yeah. They're, they're variable, they're controlled by a solenoid, and that solenoid failure is really common. Duty cycle. Uh, yeah, it's pulse width modulated, so it's it's really common failure. Um, when they get lazy like that, it's usually a sign of, hey, it's about to go out. After you evacuate the refrigerant properly, you can take the valve out and inspect it. Uh, you'll probably find debris in it. If you find a really thick gray sludge or particles, your compressor's toast and you really, really properly need to have the system flush, totally flush. which is the, the correct dealer procedure would be to pull the, um, pull the expansion valve and um, replace either the condenser completely or just the dryer, depending on whether the dryer bag is broken, because these are also known to blow desiccant through the entire system. Yeah. If this were an FSI, that sounds expensive. It well, the TSI is not too bad. The FSI, it was like twenty three hundred bucks, uh, and that was 
all the time and compressors. And that's dropping. the thing about AC. AC can go from zero to suck in like yeah. a heartbeat. It really can. You can get that valve separate, not from the dealership. In the aftermarket, you can get that valve separate. But I'm thinking your compressor's just becoming lazy uh, and, and it's just not able to keep up. The other side of that is asking your compressor to keep up at 100 degrees is asking a lot a out ask. of it. It's capable. It big can ask. pump the refrigerant, but that is a big ask. Also, look at some other environmental factors. Are you driving around with a black car with black leather interior Humidity. in the middle of the day? Humidity plays a factor. These are all things that can attribute to that. But uh, my my uh, VW guts say that you probably got a compressor on the way out. So with a lazy compressor, can you like speak to it in a motivational sense yeah. and possibly get it to not be so lazy? You you can try. You know, give it a little tap a tap. Yeah, possibly, but. If you have access to a scan <laughs> with a BFH, uh, if you have access to a scan tool, you can go in and monitor duty cycle and amperage request for the compressor. Uh, 8.2 or sorry, 0.82 amps is the full request for that compressor. So if you're getting the full request and low temperature output and weird readings, that's bad. You probably got a bad compressor. Um, there's it's being told what to do, it's just not doing it. Yeah. Uh, back to kind of the refrigerant level and charge. Uh, those those are like, I don't know, 700, 800, I think 650 to 800 grams, depending on the system on a VW's kind of average charge level. 100 grams is enough to make your air conditioning start acting weird. The old Torags, if it was over 100 grams low, would start blowing different temperatures out of the passenger side yep. and driver's side. Yep. Then. So that. it's that sensitive that an eighth off, an eighth of a charge off can make it start doing squirrely things. So before I spent a dollar on any component, I'd make sure the refrigerant level was right. Yeah, because it sounds like, it's, especially with cars that may have been on the aftermarket for a bit, the first go-to for just about anybody, especially if you walk into the auto parts store is, here's a can of stuff, put it in there, see if it works. And that is often the wrong move. Even the ones that have gauges on it, I found to be incredibly inaccurate. Useless. Uh, it, it's great if you're just trying to charge your system up initially, but yeah, if you know it's going to leak and you're just yeah, you know, ignoring it. But I, I've I've lived by refrigerant charge as a very early step in the diagnostic process. All right, guys, we are going to wrap it up there. Questions, comments, you know what to do. If you like the video, thumbs up. If you're listening on the audio side, do me a favor and head over to iTunes. Throw it a review. If you liked it, hit a five star. If not, well, that's cool. You can give it the star you think that it deserves. Five stars. If you want exclusive content, discounts you can't get anywhere else to places like Eastwood, oddly enough, Sonic Tools, MT Knives, Black Forest Industries, and more, check out the group membership program. You can also throw some support on Patreon or use my Amazon link. You can also check out Eric's premium membership, which is pretty rock star. They found out early about this vehicle that we're driving in now. Uh, which is pretty cool stuff. I always like that kind of thing for premium members. Don't forget to follow us both on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and I don't think Eric Snapchats, but let's be honest, I don't do a whole lot of that either. Uh, so you can check that out there. All right, guys, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time.